I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to a very familiar passage, or at least that section of the Psalms is familiar, Psalms 24. David says, uh, may they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. And while you're turning, just let me say to you that Psalms 22 is about the suffering Savior. It's the great passage of the uh, Masonic uh, passage in which it talks about the sufferings of the Messiah. And Psalms 23, you know all too well, is the Good Shepherd passage. And then we have this passage, chapter 24. It has to do with the king, the sovereign king. The earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hand and a pure heart does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, ye ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, ye ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Let's pray. Father, we come to your house today to worship you and realize that you are a great God. And so, Father, we come to seek you, to know you to place in our hearts just who you are, that we might live by that which is unseen in this world, and that you will place the hope of glory within us as we live out our days. So we seek you today in the name of Jesus Christ and amen. Several months ago, I went to West Virginia where I grew up, and my brother invited me to a gospel sing. It's made up of a lot of former quartet singers, some great uh, piano players, and they were some men who sang some solos. And on my way there, I was thinking about what I might hear, not only the songs, but the responses. Now, sometimes the people in West Virginia get happy about their religion, and they say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, Amen. When we got almost to the church, I thought, yeah, there were a few old-timers that used to say, glory, glory to God. Now, I don't know if you remember some of the old-timers that would say that, and I listened intently, not only to the music, but to the responses, and I heard the praise the Lord's, the hallelujahs, and the amens, but I didn't hear glory. Glory is mentioned 300 times 
in scriptures. Philippians 2.11 simply says that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Romans 3.23, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. David would simply say in Psalms 119.1 that the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, I'm not going to go through the other 300 passages, so relax. But there's a lot of songs, particularly choruses, dozens of them, talks about glory. And a lot of the old hymns as well. Trust and obey, there's that line, what a glory he sheds on our way. There's this hymn that talks uh, in terms, I will make sure of glory. That's found in the hymn, Is My Name Written There? And I found myself painting this spring, and I was singing this chorus. He will give you grace and glory. He will give you grace and glory. He will give you grace and glory and go with you, with you, all the way where he leads me. Some churches today will be singing glory to the Father, glory to the Son, and glory to the Holy Ghost. And if we had time, we could talk about a lot of other songs. But it's also prevalent in our prayers. If we had said the Lord's Prayer together today, we would have ended it by saying, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I marvel that in this text I read for you today, the closing stanza, the last four verses, five times it speaks of the king of glory. And unless we make any mistake, let's know for sure who this king of glory is. Christ Jesus, it is he. Now, the glory of God we see from the beginning pages of Scripture. God in the Garden of Eden walking and talking with Adam. Then with Abraham, God is personally present, saying that he's going to have a great nation. It's going to multiply greatly. God's going to protect them and bless them. And then on the backside of the wilderness, we see Moses, who sees a strange sight. It's a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And Moses says, I'm going to turn aside. I want to see this strange sight. When he gets closer, he doesn't realize it, but God's glory is present in the bush. And God says, Moses, Moses. Calls him Moses for the first time, I think, because he wants him to be in right relationship with himself. And secondly, because he wants to call him to be a leader of his people. God says to Moses, you're standing on holy ground. We need to pause and think about holy ground for a moment. Moses well, Scripture says it's the far side. I hate to use that phrase because some of you probably read the comics this morning and you're sidetracked. But he's away from his family. 
He's away from the place where he got his education in Egypt. He's away from his people in Goshen. He's all alone, and yet God says, this is holy ground. What's holy ground to us? This place? Is this a holy place? The place where we live and move and have our being, go to school, work, is that holy? When we invite God to come in, it is a holy place, is it not? Finally, Moses gets around to speaking to God, and he says to God, and we want to be careful how we speak to God. (laughs) Because he says to God, here I am. And the almighty God, the all-powerful God, says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God goes on because he has some concerns in his heart. Now he speaks that not only is an all-powerful God, but that he is a God who is all-knowing. And he says, I've seen the distress of my people in Egypt. Secondly, he says, I am, I am concerned for them. Thirdly, he says, I've come down to rescue them. And fourthly, he says, I am. I am sending you, Moses. Now, Moses is frightened by that, and he changes the conversation, or at least he tries to. He doesn't say, well, Lord, I'm ready. Lord, I'm able. Lord, I'm willing. He says to God, who am I that I should go? Now, the Almighty speaks again. He's an all-present God, and he says, I will go with you. Wow. Moses says, well, if they ask me who you are, what am I to say to them? And God says some most profound words that we discuss in philosophy classes and theological classes even today. He says, I am who I am. What words? If they ask you who is sending you, you tell them, I am have sent me to you. We serve an awesome God, a God who is greatly to be feared, who's all powerful, always present, always knowing. And so Moses became the human leader of the house of Israel. But don't we really know that it's God and his great glory that goes with them? Have you ever thought about trying to be part of the tribe of Israel? Experiencing God under the leadership of Moses? Being delivered with all the riches of Egypt? Having your back up against the Red Sea? God making a way on dry ground? Oh, you know, we need water. God provided water. We need bread. God provided bread. We need meat. God provided meat. And our clothing, our robes, our shoes, they never wore out. And I asked, don't you know that in the wilderness it can get really hot in the daytime? God gives a cloud by day 
And at night it can get freezing. And God provided a fire to keep them warm. Doesn't God provide places where we live, our clothing, everything that we eat? God provides all of our needs for us. Sometimes we don't think about it. We think, well, yeah, God provided for Moses and that whole crowd. But God provides for us as well. And when the cloud lifted and moved, the children of Israel got up and they moved. We need to learn the lesson that when God initiates, we respond. And so we see that after Moses got them into the wilderness, there was a great mountain, Mount Sinai, and there was, God was on the mountain. There was smoke and fire and lightning and thunder, and Moses went up the hill, received the Ten Commandments, and had a very close encounter with God, so much so that his face radiated the glory of God when he came off the mountain. And he was trying to tell the children to build a tabernacle and an ark and all the implements that went with it, and they were trying to hide their eyes from Moses because they saw the glory of God. And finally, it came to the day in which they were going to consecrate the tabernacle. The priests were there with all of their robes, just as God had commanded. Tabernacle was there as God commanded. The ark was there as God commanded. All the implements, all the furnishings. And all of a sudden, there was this cloud that came and descended on the ark and on the tabernacle. God was present with them. God saturated the tabernacle. And so they began their journey in the wilderness. God who was present in a bush, on a mount, on the face of Moses, now resides in the tabernacle. Well, let's fast forward. They enter the promised land. Solomon builds a tremendous temple. Mount Zion can be seen for miles away. It glistened with gold. It's not a very big building. And yet in today's figures, it's worth $150 billion. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being part of the crowd when they brought the ark, carrying it? The ark was always in the Holy of Holies. The priest could get there on the Day of Atonement to put blood on the horns of the altar. A chance in a generations to see the holy ark of God. I can imagine a lot of people standing on tippy-toe, trying to look between heads, just to get a glimpse of the ark of God. They brought the ark into the temple and into the Holy of Holies. There was an anticipation of what might happen. No one knew for sure. But somebody started to sing, His love endures forever. That's what's recorded in Chronicles. They probably sang Psalms 136, which is really uh, a song that ends each Each verse ends with, his love endures forever. When they finished singing, all of a sudden, 
The cloud that was over the tabernacle appears over the temple. And men and women, the house of Israel, began to fall before the Lord because they were in the presence of God. So much so that we are told that the priests could not perform their duties in the house because the cloud saturated the temple of God. Let's go on in time. House of Israel and Judah carried off into captivity. Now they find themselves in Babylon, and they begin to complain. Lamentations 5 simply says, why do we find ourselves in captivity? Why have we been treated so? Not that any of us would recognize the pity in those two lines. <laughs> Ezekiel sees a vision. It's a vision that he describes to the house of Israel. He says that the glory of the Lord rose from the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. It moves to the threshold, to the door. And yet the glory of the Lord is radiated through the temple. If you go down through that passage, Ezekiel chapter 10, you'll come to this verse, which I think is probably one of the most saddest verses of the Old Testament. It says that the glory of the Lord lifted from the threshold and departed. God was gone. They were in captivity. You come to the end of the Old Testament, after Malachi, there is no prophets, and for 400 years, they don't hear from God. Can you imagine going to church year after year, decade after decade, century after century? God, not there. God was gone. And in that cycle, the dreaded Pharisees come to power. And when they come to power, they bring a bondage of legalism in the context of the practice of religion apart from the presence of God. I want you to hear that today because there was a form of religion, a form of godliness, but there was no power. What a place to live. Let's jump ahead a few centuries. Cold night, stars are out, shepherds tending their flock. And all of a sudden, the angels break through the sky. The shepherds lost in awe and wonder didn't have the power of speech. They couldn't describe what they were seeing. And we talk about it every Christmas. The glory of the Lord shone round about them. The appearance of the angels to the shepherds signifies the return of the glory of God. 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. For 33 years, the glorious presence of God, which was in a bush, on a mount, in a face, in a tabernacle, in a temple, is now present in his divine son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is betrayed, dies a criminal's death. But the good news is that on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that he might make us as he is. Our calling is in that hope of becoming and having the glory of God within us. After three days, he arises from the tomb. He goes to his disciples, teaches them about the kingdom of God, and ascends into heaven. But before he descends, he tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait and pray. And obediently they went, and obediently they waited, and obediently they prayed for 10 days. Now, that's what I call a prayer meeting. (laughs) And all of a sudden, there came a violent noise, rushing wind through the house. Tongues descended, separated, and fell on each of the disciples. And the glory they thought was gone was back again. (laughs) And so Stephen begins his message by talking about the glory of God in Acts 7. And he ends it with the glory of God, gazing into heaven, seeing Jesus who's at the right hand of God the Father. And the church begins. You see, up until this point, the glory of God was in a brush. It was on a mount, it was on a face, in a cloud, in a fire, a tabernacle and a temple, and God's divine Son. But on the day of Pentecost, the glory of God comes to a place it has never been before. It rests inside of God's created beings. The children of God, those who believe, God rests within them. The glory of God is inside flesh. Now, there are many texts to prove this, but the Colossians 1.27 passage, Christ in you, the hope of glory, seems to settle it all. Christ lives within you and within me. Not only that we might be his children, but so that we can display his glory throughout the world among our neighbors, as we talked about this morning. And my, how that is so true in the church. And for those of you who have grown up in the church, you've known it for years. How did we sing that as a little child? I have the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. I got the love of Jesus, love of Jesus, love of Jesus. Where? Down in my heart. I got the peace that passes, the, the peace that passes all understanding. Where? Down in my heart. We've sung about that all of our life. I serve a risen Savior. 
ends with that line. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. I looked at that song this week on the internet and I found a response. In fact, it was the 20th of September, exactly a month ago. She writes, I love this song, but what does he live within my heart mean? To me, this song seems unfortunate to be not talking about true life, which frustrates me. I sing this song minus the phrase, he lives within my heart. And her last three words are haunting words. Anyone console me? Anyone out there who can console me? You see, Jesus does live within our hearts. When Jesus lives within our hearts, the glory of God is present. And so we have brothers and sisters here in this fellowship and through our works around the world. great God of glory lives within us. What a wonderful change in my life has taken place when Jesus came into my heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, every Sunday we need to take time to worship you regain our focus of who you are. Have a glimpse of your great glory. Oh, what a mighty God we serve. You are so real in our hearts. Father, we pray that we will proclaim your glory to a world for it is dark and it needs to see your light. For thus we pray in Jesus' name and amen.